I don't know what's coming next, um, and so I'm just filling in this this one Sunday. So I thought we would kind of do a sort of, I guess you could call it maybe an epilogue to uh, Isaiah. So we, we've finished Isaiah, uh, but I wanted to continue um, or maybe kind of um, launch off of a, something that Pat, um, Dr. Master had talked a little bit about last week, um, which is this idea of... Uh, the the kind of difference in understanding from the Old Testament prophets' perspective of the coming of the Messiah, and then how we understand it now from the the standpoint of the the New Testament. Um, but, so we're going to actually look at a couple of uh, passages here uh, in Matthew, where Matthew quotes uh, from Isaiah. But before we do that, um, we want to talk just a little bit about uh, a concept that I think I've mentioned it in here before. Um, at some point, I don't remember how long ago, um, it's a, it's a concept that, um, if you pick up any kind of New Testament theology book, it's probably going to come up somewhere. Uh, it's a concept that I was taught in seminary, uh, Nathan was taught in seminary, but it's one of those concepts that's not simply just a kind of academic understanding, but I think it's really helpful in actually, um, understanding the way the New Testament talks about things. And it's this concept called the already not yet. Already not yet. So it's this idea that when you, when you read the New Testament, um, there's a sense in which the kingdom of God has already come. Right? It's here. Christ says that. And yet, it doesn't always feel like it's fully here yet, right? So it's it's not yet been consummated. We might say it's been inaugurated, but it's not yet been uh, consummated. Um, and, and this gets again to that that analogy that uh, Dr. Master used of kind of looking at a mountain range. And the prophet sees it, it looks like it's one mountain, but actually, if you're farther away and looking at it from the side, you can tell that there's space between the, the mountain peaks. There's gaps there. Um and oftentimes, um, in the New Testament, what we see is that, is that people expect that when the kingdom of God comes, it will come in fullness in one instance, right? Like it comes uh, all at once. So they're expecting uh, not only blessing, but also judgment to come at the same time. Um, they're expecting, as you know, Isaiah said in, in Isaiah 65, uh, 17, that the new creation will happen uh, when the Messiah comes, <clears throat> uh, and it's all going to happen right away. And that's not quite what we see, right, in the New Testament. Um, Jesus does say that the kingdom is here with his coming. It's already present, but it's not yet here in its entirety uh, or in its fullness, right? Um, there's a, if any of you have the an ESV study Bible, there's a helpful diagram um, that they have. Uh, near the beginning of the, the New Testament in one of the study notes. Um, so they have this timeline that talks about kind of the perspective of the, of the, old, uh, the old Testament prophets. Um, what we might call the, the time of promise. Uh, and then you've got you know, this timeline that goes this direction, and then there's the... Um, Make sure I'm getting this right. The last, the last days, right? Sometimes, um, and we actually talked a little bit uh, 
early on about some of the minor prophets who talk about the day of the Lord coming, right? And they saw this as kind of this one continuous and, and you know, the time of fulfillment will come and the day of the Lord will be here and that's it. Um, but in reality, what we end up with is something that looks more like this. And there's kind of this, this overlap. And I'm not an artist, so just deal with my ugly looking cross. But we have the cross here, right? The coming, the first coming of, of Christ. Um, this is the, the time of promise uh, from the Old Testament perspective. Um, but there's this time in between here, right? Uh, this would be the, um, the age to come, what you call it. And here we might say the age to come is uh, partially realized. In, in this time frame, um, and here it's fully uh, realized. And um, this time that, last days, that, uh, that we might call the last days is, is really this in-between period, which is where we live, right? Um, these are the last days. And so the age to come, in some sense, has broken in, right, with the, the resurrection of Christ. Um, that's why Paul, you know, says things like, you know, that you've been glorified, you've been sanctified. He uses these, these uh, the words of, it's already happened, and yet we wrestle with sin still. We're, we're not delivered fully from our sinful inclinations, right? Um, and it's because we live in this, this time... Um, in between the, the kind of coming of the kingdom and the full realization of, uh, of the kingdom. Um, so this would obviously be when Christ returns again, right? So from the perspective, again, of, of the Old Testament prophets, this looks like one thing. And yet we recognize now from our reading of the, the New Testament and just dealing with the way that the New Testament speaks of these things that there's actually Christ the Messiah coming the first time to inaugurate or bring the kingdom in and yet we wait for his return when this age is done away with and the age to come is all that there is. So we're kind of in this in-between where we're both living in this age and in the age to come as Christians, right? Does that make sense? Yeah. And like the birth of Christ is the start of a new creation, so that that top line would be the new creation, the bottom would be the old creation, we're just waiting for the old creation, or we're waiting for the new creation. Yeah, so so we kind of, we still deal with the old creation, right? Our old, the old man, right? And yet, we are, we are new creatures in Christ. So, if you remember this as you as you read through the New Testament on your own and you come to these passages where it's kind of strange, like, what is going on here? It feels like this weird in-between. Well, it is. We're in this kind of, not weird, but we're in this in-between stage, right? Um, where, where 
again, the, the, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. The, the, now is the day of salvation. Uh, and yet we recognize in our own daily experience that we don't fully live in the age to come yet. It hasn't been fully realized. And this is, so the New Testament is here. We live here. We don't know how long this is going to last, um, as long as the Lord wills it. Uh, but then eventually Christ will return to, inaug or to not inaugurate, but consummate um, the, the age to come and um, bring the kingdom in its entirety. And that's how even, as uh, we'll see fairly soon, uh, Pastor Phillips is reading through the book of Hebrews as the scripture reading. Like you're going to see that um, not all things have been subjected to Christ yet. But he's also reigning. So how does that work? Well, again, it's, be, it's because we're in this in-between time. We're, in this, we're living in the already not yet period. Um, any questions about that before we go look at some passages in Matthew? That makes sense? <laughs> okay. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11 first. We'll look at a passage in Matthew 11 and then another one in Matthew um, chapter 12. Um. Let me set, kind of set the stage for this passage in Matthew 11. So uh, kind of a, an over, slight, slight overview or general overview of, of Matthew. Obviously in uh, 5, 6, and 7, you get Jesus teaching his Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, so Jesus teaching ministry, and then primarily in 8 and 9 in Matthew, and into 10, you get miracles um, that Christ does. So Matthew has it very clearly organized, teaching miracles. Then in 11, 12, 13, we get this section that uh, D.A. Carson calls uh, Teaching and Preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom, and then subtitle Rising Opposition. Uh, or another commentator said Varying Responses. So what we see in uh, 11, 12, 13, one of the themes that kind of runs through those chapters of uh, Matthew is this growing sort of disillusionment or disappointment with uh, Christ and, and with Jesus and who he is and what his ministry is doing, along with outright opposition that grows from the Pharisees and the scribes uh, and, and the other Jewish leaders. So there's opposition to Christ, but there's also this sense of disappointment and rejection that's going to grow through these chapters. Uh, and it's, um, as, as a lot of the commentators point out, generally thought that a lot of this is because they have a false understanding of uh, who the Messiah is. What is he coming to do? Um, and it's interesting, uh, there's this fascinating passage here that we're going to look at in the first part of chapter 11, uh, where there's an interchange between um, the disciples of John and Jesus. Um, but just as a couple other, if you look at like 1120, um, it says, then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Um, so a lot of these places, they didn't understand what was going on. Um, chapter 12 is really where he's going to get into conflict with uh, the Pharisees. But back at the beginning of chapter 11, we get this uh, interesting passage talking about John the Baptist. So I'm going to read 11, uh, 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples... He went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? 
And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Um, so, this is interesting because um, a lot of the early church fathers, uh, they read this passage and they, they thought, surely there's no way that John the Baptist is now questioning whether or not Jesus is actually the true Messiah, right? He of all people should know, certainly it is Jesus. Uh, and yet, most of the recent commentators, I think rightly, as you just read the passage, uh, say that's exactly what's going on. John actually is having some slight doubts. Um, why would he have doubts about, you know, is this really, are you really Jesus the, the Messiah? Um, I mean, it makes sense if you look at his situation. He's been in prison, he possibly has been in prison at this point for over a year. Um, and look back, we're going to flip back to um, chapter 3 of Matthew, where um, Matthew tells us what, G, or what John the Baptist uh, is saying about the Messiah. Um, it is Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. So this is, this is John, uh, you know, preparing the way. And he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, at this point, like, has John or anybody else seen that kind of ministry from Jesus? We've seen some of it, right? The, there's Certainly the blessings are there, um, but there's been no sense at this point in Jesus' ministry of, of any kind of judgment, right? Of this uh, winnowing happening. So you can kind of understand and sympathize with John, right? That, that at this point, uh, the ministry that Jesus has been doing as the Messiah doesn't actually appear to fit with maybe what they were expecting the, the Messiah to do. Um, so how does Jesus answer that? Uh, there's another clue here also that what, what some of the uh, what some of the early church fathers, their interpretation of this passage was that John sends his disciples in order to uh, get Jesus to answer the disciples so that the disciples would be encouraged that, yes, what John was saying really is the case and Jesus is the Messiah. Um, but it's interesting because Jesus tells the disciples, go and tell John what you hear and see. So I think J Jesus is recognizing John is actually the one asking this. He really is uh, wondering, there's some uncertainty. Um, and what does Jesus say in his, in his answer? What does he tell them to take back to John? Well, they're, <clears throat> they're to go uh, and tell John what they see, like what they've also witnessed, but then also, uh, this is what he says, the blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Where do all of those things come from? Well, obviously, Jesus is doing those things, right? But those are all things that he quotes from uh, multiple places in Isaiah. Um, so we're going to turn and look at 
Isaiah, uh, let's look to Isaiah 35, would be one of them. <coughs> oh, and before I, um, before we flip there, actually, a couple of other uh, things to note about the way that Matthew frames this. So notice that um, Matthew says, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, um, Matthew actually doesn't use the term the Christ all that often. It's the the Greek you know, word for the Messiah. Um, he's clearly using it here intentionally, though, um, in order to say, yes, this really is the Messiah, and John is asking about the, the Messiah. He really, Matthew's saying, I recognize he's the Messiah. You, as a reader, should recognize he's the Messiah. But uh, John is asking specifically, are you the Messiah? Um, and notice also that John says, are you the one who is to come? Uh, that's the same phrase that he had used in chapter 3, verse 11. Let me read that one again. So it's the same word. Um, He who is coming after me is mightier than I. It's the same exact word um, when he says, are you the one who is to come? Okay, so uh, Isaiah chapter 35 I'm going to read, starting verse 3, Strengthen the weak hands, and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Uh, so Jesus is clearly referencing this passage. Another one uh, is Isaiah uh, 29, verses 18 and 19. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Um, 26 verses 18 and 19, I think, is another one. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Your dead shall live... Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So Jesus is saying, I've done these things, right? And this is what Isaiah promised would be the case when uh, when God's salvation comes to his people. And then the last one is Isaiah uh, 61. And this is the one that he, uh, Jesus finishes with when he um, describes, uh, you know, what he's been doing. Uh, He ends on this note, and um, some of the commentators say this is kind of how Jesus really sees, it sums up his his ministry. Uh, He says, the poor have good news preached to them. And there's sort of uh, echoes of of Matthew 5, right, and the Beatitudes that are in that. Isaiah 60, 
1, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So Jesus' response is, is very clear, I think. Take this back to John. This is what you see happening. This is who I am. Right? I'm doing these things. And we can see that um, pretty easily on the surface level. Um, what's interesting, though, is that uh, Carson points out that there's something else also going on, sort of subtly behind, underneath this. And that is that each of those uh, passages, so we're going to look at them again, the con- in the context of each of those passages, there is also a note of judgment um, that is mentioned. So, um, in Isaiah 35, I read it uh, in verse 4, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. So the salvation also, as Dr. Master mentioned multiple times, is coupled with judgment. And I think uh, what Carson is saying is that Jesus, in, in picking up on these specific verses, is trying to sort of, uh, in a sort of hidden, veiled way, let John know that's coming too. The judgment is coming too. It's not here yet. It hasn't come yet. But it's coming to you. Um, Isaiah 29. So we read uh, 17 and 18. Or 18 and 19, sorry. If you keep going, though. Verse 20. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease. And all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate. And with an empty plea, turn aside him who is in the right. Um, 26, same thing. We read uh, 18 and 19. If you keep going, 26, 20. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover it's slain. And then in chapter 61, uh, we read verse 1. And if you keep going into verse 2, <clears throat> you will see to proclaim. So um, he has anointed, the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And then verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, etc., etc. But notice there's also the mention of the day of vengeance, right, in all of these passages. So um, perhaps Jesus here is, again, letting John know, obviously he's saying, I am the Messiah, right? You don't need to doubt. I am the one who's been promised. And uh, these are the things I'm doing, and yet... These passages also speak of, of judgment, the Lord's recompense. Uh, that will come in due time. But it's not happening at this moment. Um, and then it's interesting, he says, And blessed is the one who is not 
offended by me. Uh, sometimes, at least when I've read this passage in the past, I always thought, well, I wonder what he means by, you know, the person who's not offended by me. We oftentimes, um, especially because of the kind of um, the emphasis on uh, substitutionary atonement, which is right and appropriate, that's often what springs to mind first. We, we know that, like, um, sometimes we're afraid to, to, you know, tell other people the gospel because we're afraid of what they think. They might be offended that we are calling them sinners. Um, they might be offended by this concept that somebody has to die for their sins. That is all true, but that's actually not what Jesus is talking about right here. I think what he's saying is it's a, it's a kind of warning to, to John's apostles, uh, to John himself, not a threatening warning, but just a reminder to say, don't let your preconceived notion of who the Messiah is get in the way of you recognizing me for who I really am. Don't let your um, thinking that uh, the Messiah is going to come and bring military deliverance to Israel from the Roman oppressors. Don't let that get in the way of you recognizing I've come to forgive sin, to, to heal the brokenhearted, to give new, good news to the poor. I will also bring judgment at the right time, but this is what my ministry looks like right now. It's, it's caring for uh, these people as a shepherd cares for the lost sheep, right? It's it's um, being a doctor to those who recognize they're sick, right? That's my ministry right now. Don't be offended by that. Don't let your uh, wrong understanding of who the Messiah really is prevent you from seeing me as the one who has been sent by God to fulfill uh, his purposes. Does that make sense? So I think that's what's going on here. Um, and again, we, we can see that with the help of this understanding of the fact that the Jesus ministry happens here and we live here and there will be uh, a time when the judgment comes. All right. Um, and then just briefly, we're going to look at in the next chapter, another passage. Any questions about that first? So, turn over to Matthew chapter 12. I have a question. Yes. Too late. Your time passed. Sorry. <laughs> what is any of says the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force? Down in verse 12 there. That seems, that feels like it's in the ballpark of what you're talking about, but I don't understand it. Um, good question. So, this is when he starts talking about who John is. He's essentially affirming the ministry of John and saying, yes, John, uh, John's ministry is part of this Messiah coming also. Um, and then verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. He's, I think, probably referring at least in that. I don't know for, for certain. I didn't uh, go on and study this section. I'm, I think there's an allusion at least to uh, John's imprisonment um, and the fact that there is opposition to the, the messianic ministry, including John himself. Um, and then the violent take it by force. I don't know what the it actually is referring to there. I don't It'd be interesting to go back and look. Anybody have any ideas? 
Thoughts? Like is the kingdom itself. Right, is the is the violent take it by force, so the violent are taking the kingdom by force? Um it's probably for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. I think in the immediate context it seems that he's saying um John is part of the kingdom. And he, as was as he was arrested, you can see that the, the there is opposition to the kingdom. They're attempting to thwart it. Um, that's my reading of it, right? He's and he's making it in this kind of more general statement because um, it's going to continue to be true. John's ministry was kind of the the. Um, the beginning of the breaking in of the messianic ministry, right? He he is the one that was prof who was prophesied that he would prepare the way for the Messiah, and so Jesus is saying, you know, from that moment through now, there is opposition, violent opposition um, to the kingdom of heaven, and that's interesting because actually it that leads into then what we're going to look at here in. Um, Chapter 12. So in chapter 12, starting in verse, uh, well, we'll start in verse 14, actually. So this is after Jesus heals a man on, on the Sabbath, right? And it says, but the Pharisees, verse 14, went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. And so again, there's, there's more working out, I think, of what, uh, what we just saw in that verse back in chapter 11, 12. Um, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. Um, pause there. So, Jesus has this, this interesting and puzzling behavior at times throughout his ministry, where he, you know, a crowd begins to form, uh, he withdraws, when he heals people, he tells them not to tell people, right, keep it quiet, which you'd think, why is he doing that? Um... Matthew's going to tell us here, as he quotes from Isaiah chapter 42, that the reason he does that is because he's fulfilling his role as the suffering servant. Um, but Jesus knows that the Pharisees are against him. They want to um, figure out how they can destroy him. So he, he pulls away, but people follow him. He heals the people. And then verse 17, Matthew says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Um, it's interesting that Jesus' response, again, um, to the opposition is not let's take up arms and fight back, right? Let's uh, when it says you know he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He's obviously preaching, so it doesn't mean he's completely silent, but it means that he's not uh, he is not arguing back in the sense of he's not trying to assert his own uh, right. He's not bringing about uh, armed conflict with Rome with the Jewish leaders. This is not what he came to do. He came to be a suffering servant. 
um, to care for the weak. Uh, as he says in verse 20, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. So he is, he is there, at least initially, in the beginning of his ministry, um, until it's time to go to the cross. He is about these kinds of things. Um, and again, it, it doesn't fit with what uh, the Jewish people were expecting of their Messiah at that time. It doesn't fit with what even John was expecting um, at that time. And yet Matthew is saying, but it's, it's what was prophesied all along. It's not like he's doing something different from what Isaiah said would happen. He's actually fulfilling what Isaiah said the Messiah would do. Um, so what, what, are, what are the, other than that understanding now of Jesus and his mission, how do we respond to that? Like what, how is this helpful for us um, in terms of, applying it to our own lives today. Um, I don't, I'm guessing none of us would outright question, is Jesus the Messiah? I think we would all, I hope we would all agree, yes, he is the Messiah. Um, but I think sometimes we can get a bit tempted as we live, you know, in this in this in-between time, uh, we can sometimes wonder, like, what is the Lord doing? Right. Um, even as John is, is thinking like, I haven't seen judgment. There's no fire and brimstone coming down. Right. There's none of this um, threshing floor. The Lord separating the sheep and the goats. Now what's going on? And we can sometimes uh, fall into, I think, similar thinking. Like, what is the Lord doing um, when it looks like maybe the church in the West is uh, losing its influence and the, the forces of secularism are um, becoming stronger and stronger. It's easy to think, like, you know, what's the plan? And we, we need to remember that um, we don't always see on this side what the Lord is doing or why he's doing something the way he is, right? Just as, um, just as the people in Jesus' day didn't recognize uh, all the time. And we need to be humble and uh, trust that the Lord is fulfilling his purposes and carrying out his plan and accomplishing what he wants to accomplish in the way that he's going to accomplish it uh, while we wait for the final fulfillment of his promises. Um, any other thoughts, ways that this helps us to live, as Dr. Master said last week in the, the, uh, the current age, Kind of means like on one possible difference though between our situation and Jesus is that at that point Jesus was in a state of humiliation. He was keeping the messianic secret. He was a suffering servant, but he's not anymore. Now he's exalted, mm -hmm. and we are in our state of humiliation, bearing the cross of Jesus, and we're not yet glorified. But it's not the same because now he is winning. He's on the victory march forever and this doesn't end. it may end in our time it will end in our death but not like the kingdom is going onward yeah. and upward and our story is not a narrative of decline 
whether the West or anything else, but at the triumphal march of Jesus. Yeah, that's we're not going backwards to old-fashioned times. The yeah. modern world belongs to Jesus. Yes. Sorry, I said I was done. I no, no, that's great. That's a great point. So there, should, there's the a, lines on the board. Should one be going down and the other one be going up? These? Oh, like, <laughs> like uh, kind of the direction? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I hadn't thought about that. But that is an excellent point. Um, but especially before the cross, right? John and, and these passages that we, we read, they're happening before the cross. So in some ways, um, John gets even more excuse when he, when he has doubt, right? Because the cross has not happened and Christ has not yet triumphed over death, even though he says he will, right? But we, looking back, recognize he has. He is seated on his throne. This, this age has come, right? The age to come has broken in, and because of that, we can have, we can have certainty um, that Christ is victorious, and that the, uh, the final judgment will come, and he will be vindicated fully in the eyes of everyone, right? And we can live in light of that. Yeah, so we have even less reason, right, to doubt uh, and to be uncertain, though we still do, because we are living in this period. But I mean, the escalating conflict in the church and the world, which it certainly is, is only because the gospel is going forth and is now over all the world as it never has been before in history. Mm -hmm. And it's the rising like triumph of Christ which provokes Satan's last death throes. But it's because he's, it's, it's because of that. Yeah, things go from bad to worse because there's more and more direct confrontation of the gospel with all power, the defeated powers of evil. Which have been defeated. Yeah. So, like verse twenty is a really the, the latter half of it is a really nice nutshell of what you're saying that we are in the age of, of victory, but we're waiting for the justice, the judgment to be added. Yeah. Yep. Um, and that both are necessary. Right. Yeah. I've I've read. Uh, I don't remember who um, compares it to. Um, kind of a, a war in which like the, the victory is already won and yet there are people that don't quite know it and they're still like out there fighting right uh, and it's a, just a matter of like the the, the, the finishing of that um, it will come uh, we just have to wait for uh, the Lord's appointed time for that any other thoughts before I close in prayer okay let me pray and we'll be dismissed Father in heaven, we do thank you again for your word. Uh, we thank you uh, for especially the, the New Testament writers who help us to understand uh, what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And we do rejoice uh, in the fact that uh, Christ is seated on the throne. He is victorious. He has defeated um, sin and Satan and death. And that you are um, now um, bringing about um, the final consummation of your kingdom. We rejoice that uh, that kingdom has broken in to our age and, and we, uh, we who are followers of Christ are citizens of that kingdom. And we pray that you would help us to uh, be used by you, help us to be uh, humble servants who by your spirit are um, bringing about the furtherance of that kingdom here on earth. Um, we pray that you would help us to see the opportunities around us to um, share that good news of the gospel, to proclaim uh, Christ as the
promised Messiah uh, to those who need to hear that message. Um, would you uh, help us, Lord, um, as we wait for that final uh, consummation and fulfillment of your promises, help us to wait eagerly, uh, to wait expectantly, uh, and help us also, Lord, to, um, to be watching out for those that we might bring along and bring into that kingdom by your spirit uh, as they hear the gospel and believe. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.